Well, Christmas is very uh, good time at arousing in us warm, sentimental and cosy feelings, very safe feelings, fairy lights on buildings, stockings above fireplaces, bonbons and bad jokes. It's wonderful, isn't it? And um, even though I've never had a white Christmas, for some reason I'm nostalgic about a Christmas with eggnog and roasted chestnuts. I've never even spent a Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere. And yet somehow, you know, Christmas kind of evokes these nice, gentle, warm, sentimental feelings. And um, I think for most people, that's what Christmas is, just a little bit kitsch. Um, you know, there are these kind of nice, sentimentally, but it's not serious and it's not profoundly wonderful, it's just a little bit kitsch. Um, a number of years ago, I was reading on the subject of um, beauty, and I, rem- I remember reading what someone said, which is, kitsch is art without seriousness. It's art that's just cute and nice, but doesn't really say anything, isn't truly wonderful. Or see- and I think for most people, that's what Christmas is. It's about peace, joy, and all that crap which is what Sean Wilson said we should title this series, but I couldn't bring myself to put crap outside the front of the church. But that's what most people think Christmas is about, peace, joy, and all that. All that. It's not that they're opposed to it. No, no, it's just that it's kitsch. It's peace, joy, and all that stuff, right? And the great danger of Christmas is that we can miss out on how wonderful and serious Christmas really is. This is the most extraordinary event in history that God, who created the heavens and the earth and everything we see, chose to become a human being. That he came as a cell inside a mother's womb attached to her uterus and was birthed into the world as a real human being with teeth and toenails who really had to Go to the toilet. Do you know in the early church, they didn't have, you know, the churches didn't have debates about uh, issues of hell and homosexuality and how can a loving God uh, allow suffering? You know, the things they debated were things like, how could God have really become a man and had to have done a poo, right? Um, and that's the incredible news of Christianity. It is remarkable. It is a staggering claim that God became a man, and that really is what we're looking at. And what I want to do over the next um, couple of weeks, all the way up to Christmas, is to look at the five kitsch words which really sum up what Christmas is. Glory, grace, light, peace, and hope. Uh, I want to look at each one of them and really see how wonderful and serious Christmas is. And so today we're looking at glory, and glory really is about what Christmas is about. Do you remember when the angels appear to the shepherds watching their flocks by night and they appear in the sky and they say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with men. And the, angels, the, the shepherds realize what's going on and we're told that the glory of the Lord shone all around. Christmas really is about glory. Now what is glory? Glory is a big word. We say something is glorious when we mean that it is peerless, that it is worthy of our praise. And all of us were chasing glory. We want glory. We chase it on the sporting field, in our workplaces. We hunt it on holidays and we search for it in a life partner. And we see it all around us. We see it on New Year's Eve above the Sydney Harbour Bridge 
as glory explodes in the sky in radiant light. Uh, We see it on the sporting field where someone uh, scores a hat-trick in cricket or scores a touchdown in football or, um, or wins a, uh, a gold medal at the Olympics. We experience glory and we all know the feeling of standing at Echo Point in Katoomba and looking out on that vastness of the Blue Mountains and feeling the gravity of glory. We know what glory is. Uh, when we're sitting there in a concert hall or an entertainment center listening to our favorite musician. All of us know what glory is. But what is God's glory? Well, someone famously said that God's glory is the outward shining of his inward being. You should write that down. God's glory is the outward shining of his inward being because, of course, God is spirit. He isn't flesh. He isn't human. He doesn't have a body. And therefore, he is invisible and unknowable unless we see something of his radiance. Just as you and I can't look at the sun, but we can see the radiance of the sun, so too, God, we can't see God, but he radiates with light, with glory. And when we see his glory, we see what he truly is. The glory of God is the expression of his person. The glory glory is to God what brightness is to the sun, what wetness is to water, what heat is to fire. It's the emanation, it's the brightness, it's the product of his presence, it's the revelation of himself, it's the overflow of his inner being so that we might know him. It's his visible, tangible, real Radiance, that's what his glory is. Glory is the outward shining of the inner being of God. And the reason for Christmas, what is so significant about Christmas, is that though God created us for glory, we'd exchanged the glory of God for a lie, and so we had lost the glory of God. And Christmas is about Jesus Christ coming to restore to us the glory of God. And what I want to do is want to kind of look at this in that kind of big sweeping view of Christmas today by looking at the meaning of Christmas through this word glory. And, um, and what we see in the Bible is that everything exists in the world, in the universe, reveals God's glory. Everything in the universe has come from the overflow of joy and creativity and power in God. And therefore, we are all an emanation. Uh, we are all part of the radiance of God. We're the outflow of God. God creates us and we see God's hand in the creation. So that Psalm 19 says, The heavens above declare the glory of God. And I preached on this a couple of weeks ago. But I'm just going to keep hitting it because it's such an important point. The heavens above declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his name. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night we hear their voice. The heavens, the stars, they don't have a mouth. And yet they're speaking to us of the great and glorious God who made them. And I want us to just get our heads around this for a second. And I want us to zoom out of the, 
the, the, uh, the, the observatory of Brisbane. This is Brisbane uh, Observatory. And I want to just keep zooming out and out and help us get a picture of the magnificence and glory of the heavens above, which call out the glory of God. So the, as the, as the um, image lists, we're starting to see a picture of Brisbane here. It's probably better to look at either side rather than that terrible screen, right? But that's a picture of Brisbane from, what, 1,000 feet? And now we're drawing out 5,000 feet I don't know, 10,000, probably more than that, 20 or 30 or 50 or something like that. And we keep going out until we're able to see the state of Queensland. And soon Australia will come into view. And very soon we're about a quarter of a way to the space station. 100,000 kilometres away from Earth, 100 million kilometres away from Earth now. And here comes the moon coming down. We're about 100 million kilometers, still not at the sun. And at 10 trillion kilometers, there's the sun as we just pass it. And now we start to see all around it the planets. And the sun becomes just this bright dot among the stars, now 10 light years away, 10 light years and there you start to see 11 other stars in our neighborhood. Now, 1,000 other stars. And as we zoom further and further out, the Milky Way galaxy starts to come into view. And that's 100,000 stars in the Milky Way galaxy closest to us. And we just keep zooming out and out. There's our galaxy becoming a pinprick amidst all the, the immense number of galaxies in our part of the universe. Apparently there's 350 billion galaxies just in our little part of the universe. And very soon we're going to zoom back in. Let's see this. It's incredible. Here we go. All the way in. We start to see the Milky Way galaxy coming towards us. And then we zoom back into our galaxy. There's the sun. There's the moon, and here's our world, the place we call home, and we arrive back at Brisbane of all places. <laughs> uh, I was like googly, I'm like, surely someone's done this from Sydney Observatory? Apparently not. Okay, so there we go. And that really is quite incredible. Now, I've got a little, you know, the Milky Way galaxy, you know, they call it, have uh, you heard of this? They call it the pancake. Have you seen this? They call the Milky Way. It looks like a pancake. It's like this little spherical thing with a bulge in the middle. That's our galaxy. And if you were to look at this and look, even for our sun, which is enormous, our sun wouldn't even be a grain of flour in this. That is how big even just our galaxy is. And our little place in here is so infinitesimally small. You couldn't even find it with a microscope. That's how big. Now, does anyone know how wide our galaxy is? It is, let me remember, this is 100,000 light years across. Now, do you know how fast the speed of light travels? Anyone? 
Uh, I think it is. Um, now, I'm no scientist, so I'm probably going to get this wrong. But I think speed of light travels at 299,000 kilometers per second. Is that right? Jacques giving me a nod. He's an engineer, so he must be right, okay? Um, 299,000 kilometers per second. That's how fast the speed of light. That's fast, isn't it? And if you could go that fast, the speed of light, you know, a light year is traveling at the speed of light, 299 kilometers per second, 299,000 kilometers per second. That's speed of light. And a light year is 365 days of traveling at 299,000 kilometers every second. And our galaxy, the diameter, is 100,000 light years in diameter. That means it would take you 100,000 years traveling at the speed of light to get from this side of the galaxy to that side of the galaxy. And your place in our galaxy is so infinitesimally small. And isn't it crazy that people walk around this earth thinking that they're the stuff, that they're somehow tall and important and glorious? Isn't that absolutely crazy? And do you know, you know why has God created such a universe like this? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim His name. God's saying to us, you think that's amazing and glorious? Just wait till you see me. The heavens declare the glory of God, but it isn't just the heavens which declare the glory of God. Isaiah 43 verse 20, sorry, got to get rid of that. Isaiah 43 verse 20 says that the wild animals honor me. The wild animals glorify me. Anyone seen that movie, Boyhood? Uh, who's, who, who are the characters in it? Um, Ethan Hawke and uh, uh, anyway, some others. Anyway, there's this moment in that where um, Ethan Hawke's the father and he has a son and the son says to his dad, Dad, um, there's no like real magic in the world, is there? And the dad says, well, what do you mean? And the, uh, the kid goes, you know, like elves. And stuff like that. You know, people that, you know, just made all of that stuff up, right? And the dad turns to his son, does something so brilliant. He says, well, you know, I don't know. I mean, what makes you think that, that there isn't any magic in the world? That elves are any more magical than something like, and he says, anyone remember? A whale. And then he goes on to describe a whale. He says, you know, I mean, what if I told you a story about how underneath the ocean there was this giant sea mammal that used sonar and sang songs and it was so big that a human being could crawl all the way through it. I mean, you'd think that was pretty magical, right? And the kid's like, yeah, but... <laughs> and I think we, we miss the glory of God shining all around us. Thank you, Kat reminding us of the glory that we see when we stand on an incredible beach like Balmoral Beach. And we see it in the animals. We see the glory of God in the smallest butterfly and in the largest animals, the whales, the elephants, the things like that. God's artistry is all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The animals, the trees, 
The creatures of the earth, all of it is screaming to us about the glory of God. And as you go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, what you see is that human beings were made to enjoy God's glory. That we live there at peace with the world around us and at peace with God. We loved God's glory and we lived for his glory and not our own. You know, in um, chapter 1 of Genesis, we're told that human beings are made in the image of God. You know what an image is, don't you? An image is created so that you would see a picture of an original thing. So outside the Queen Victoria building, there's an image, there's a statue made of Queen Victoria that we might know the original. She's clothed in splendor and glory that we might know the original. And God has made the world, not just with the heavens above and the creatures below, but with six billion little images of him wandering all over the earth that we might know him. You know, one way to think of the image of God is to think of your calling as a mirror. That the light, the glory of God radiates towards us. And yours and my job is to glorify God by being what we were meant to be, by living for the glory of God, light would come towards us of his love and we would rebound that love back up in awe and delight of him. This is what we were made for, to be an image of the invisible God. And as a result, we lived at peace in the world. There was no stealing, lying, cheating, harsh words, abusive actions. Each one of us lived for God's glory and not our own. And so we were never filled with regret or anger or envy or compulsion or addiction or fear or guilt or aloneness or hopelessness or doubt because we were, we had God's glory. He walked in the cool of the day in the garden with us and we knew him and he guided us, directed us, spoke to us and appeared before us, in every way you could think or imagine, the world as God created it was a place of unparalleled glory. Tigers exist, butterflies exist, mountains exist, music exists, forests exist, humans exist. The solar system exists for the glory of God to showcase how wonderful He is. But there is one creature on earth that refuses to showcase God's glory. You know, isn't it amazing that the rest of creation cooperates and yet there's this one creature that refuses to cooperate? There's one creature that turns this around and says, no, I'm not, I'm not living for your glory. I'm not going to give you glory, God. You know, it's interesting. You look up in the night sky and there's not this patch of darkness where a group of stars get together and say, no, nah, we're not doing it anymore. We're not living for the glory of God. No, the stars above, they glorify God and they don't defy God. They do what they were created to do. The flowers, they don't argue with God. The butterflies, they flutter. They don't quarrel with their maker. And yet you and I, we quarrel with him. And we don't live for his glory. In fact, the Bible says we've exchanged the glory of God for a lie And rather than worshipping the Creator, we worshipped the things that He created. 
And so in chapter 3 of Genesis, we are going to start moving a little bit quicker in a second. But in chapter 3 of Genesis, after the first two human beings had sinned, they heard the voice of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and they hide. Rather than being a mirror showcasing God's glory, they become a cave or a box, and they close the lid on the glory of God, and as a result, their life becomes dark. The New Testament says that our foolish hearts were darkened. And the lights go out on God, the glory disappears, we hide from the glory of God, and the result is God removes us from the garden in which we lived, in which we saw the glory of God every single day. God rejected him. When you don't give God glory, he pushes you out from his presence. The sad thing is, though, God came to human beings. He made us. He placed glory in the heavens, glory in the earth, and glory beside us. And he walked with us and he said, will you honor me? Will you glorify me? Will you give me the respect and acknowledgement I deserve? And instead of saying yes, each one of us said no and chose to look at our own reflection and live for our own reflection rather than to live for the reflection of God himself. And so we're cast out. And you might say, well, what did God do then? Did he give up? Did he say, all right, that's it for you. No salvation for you. I'm done. That's your chance. No, God said, I'm going to send back into the world my glory. And the rest of the Old Testament is the story of God showcasing his glory in specific moments. That's what Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 is all about, isn't it? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in various and many different ways. And one of the ways was with Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Do you remember that? Moses there, God tells Moses, you've got to go to the most powerful man in the world, the Pharaoh, and ask him to let go of all his slaves, the people of Israel. And Moses is incredibly insecure. And he says, I can't do this. And God says, I will go with you. I'll send my presence to be with you. And Moses says, that sounds nice, but show it to me. He asks, show me your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. But you can't see my face, for then you would die. You would explode. It's just too wonderful. It's too momentous. So instead, I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock. And put my hand over you. God doesn't have a hand, but it's just an anthropomorphism. That's a long word for simply saying God sometimes uses human language so that we'd understand what's going on. He puts a veil over Moses. He hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he passes by him proclaiming this, the Lord, the Lord. Do you remember this? Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, God says, The Lord, the Lord, as he passes by, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, uh, love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's what God says as his glory passes by Moses. And Moses sees it and he comes back to the people. And do you remember this? He comes back and his face is lit up uh, as though he had been painted 
with, um, with uh, what do you call that paint? Uh, glow stick paint, right? He's completely lit. Now, I'm told these days that to be lit, it means something completely different, right? But he was lit, not in the bad way, but in the good ways. Um, so Moses comes back to the people completely lit, and they are absolutely terrified. They say, Moses, cover your face. We can't stand to see the glory of God like this. And so Moses puts a veil over his face. And every time he goes up the mountain to meet with God, he comes back absolutely lit. And they say, put a veil over. And he does. In other words, God comes in the garden to the, the first two people. And these people, they see his glory. And yet they say, no. They shut the lid on the glory of God. And then God comes to Moses and it's as though God's opening up the lid, shining the light of his glory back on his people. And they say no. And they shut the lid back on him. You skip forward and these rebellious Israelites who refuse to see the glory, they're given a tabernacle. As they camp on their way from Egypt to the promised land, God says, I will be with you. I'll go with you. It's all right. You're going to live in the desert, but I'll look after you. And he says to them, build a, build a tent, which is called a tabernacle, and my presence, my glory, will inhabit that tent. And by day there was a cloud above the tent, and by night there was a fire over the tent, so that all the people, all, all the, people, all the tribes, the 12 tribes, had to camp around the outside with God's glory in the tabernacle right in the center, so that they would know God is with us, God is with us. And yet, what did they do? That whole 40 years, they doubted the God who was with them. That whole 40, they complained. They rejected the Lord their God, even though they had the glory of God before them. In the garden, they closed the lid on God. It, with Moses coming back, they closed the lid on God. With the tabernacle, he's there right in their midst. And they they grumble and complain and doubt God's goodness all the time. They close the lid on God. What will God do? Well, he doesn't give up on them. He keeps doing it. So later we have Solomon who builds the temple. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago on the money talk. Do you remember that? And do you remember how much money David gave of his personal gold to the building of the temple? It was $6 billion in modern day equivalents and this temple was absolutely incredible and finally once it was built the glory of God descended into the temple and it was a wonderful place where you could go and you could know God's acceptance your sins forgiven but in the book of Ezekiel and this will be the last place in the Old Testament we go to God turns up and he says to Ezekiel come, come into the temple Ezekiel chapter 8, 9, 10 and 11 and he brings Ezekiel into the temple and he, and he has him look around and he's like, what's going on here? There were idols. The people of Israel started building idols to the Baal God. They started worshipping other gods in the temple where God's presence really dwelled. I'm pointing up here, but God doesn't dwell in here, does he? He dwells inside of each one of us by his spirits. So this is just a rain shelter. But um, right in the center of the temple, that's where God dwelt. And yet they'd started building idols and they'd started graffitiing the walls of the temple with images of the other gods. And God says to Ezekiel, what's going on? And God says, I'm leaving. And he has the word Ichabod 
written over the temple, essentially. Ichabod meaning the glory is departed. God leaves the temple. It's a very sad scene. Here's God. He comes to the garden and he says, here's my glory. And they say, no. He comes to Moses and his face is beaming with the glory of God. And yet the people say, no. He comes in the tabernacle and he dwells amongst them by the cloud by day and the fire by night. And the people say, no. He comes in his temple they start worshipping other gods and they say no to the glory of God. Surely God's patience has run its limit. Did he try again? Yes, once more. And that's when we come to John chapter 1. And we're only going to look at it very briefly. But look at John 1 verse 14. The word, this is what we're told, this is the meaning of Christmas. Don't miss this. Where have we come from? God created us to enjoy His glory. We shut the lid on God's glory and preferred the dark to the light of His glory. And Jesus comes to restore the glory of God. Look at verse 14 of John 1. The Word, which is a name for Jesus, became flesh, meaning He became a human being, took on flesh and blood, and made His dwelling, literally, He tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. He is the true tabernacle. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Look back at verse nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's what Christmas is about that we were created to enjoy God's glory, we'd shut the lid on God's glory, and God is so passionately devoted to us that we would have something worth living for, that we might know Him and enjoy Him and not give our lives over to living for the glory of created things, things which we buy, we work so hard to get, and then six months later they're in the bin. He comes to restore the glory of God And so Jesus reveals who God is. Jesus is God with us, that we might see God's glory. This is who I am. I am the presence of God in human flesh. He wants us to see Him. He wants us to acknowledge Him and see His glory. Now here's the question. Surely this time the world would see. Surely this time... What we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the glory of God making its way into the darkness of our cave. Surely that's what happens, and surely the people would see that glory and receive it this time, wouldn't they? But look at verse 11, verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It's tragic. A patient, loving, merciful God revealing glory over and over and over again. And yet we keep shutting the lid on the glory of God. Who is Jesus Christ? What is Christmas about? Jesus Christ is the glory of God. He's God with us. He's the radiation of God. He is the brightness of of God. He is the shining forth of the very being of God. 
Just as the radiance of the sun reaches the earth to light us and warm us and give us life and growth, so in Jesus we sense the warmth and radiance and light of God touching upon us. Just as the brightness of the sun is the same, is in the same nature as the sun, and yet it is distinct, so too Jesus Christ is distinct from the Father and yet shares the same being or essence. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, isn't it? The Holy Spirit as well. And so in Christ, God shows up. We get a glimpse of God, not as we're hidden in the cleft of a rock, not just in a tent, which is actually walled off, and in a temple which is closed off for us that we actually can't get in, but in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to imagine. In your minds, I imagine a cave. Imagine this represents a cave, okay? Uh, imagine a cave isolated from the rest of the world. It's uh, an image very popular in philosophy. Plato's Republic speaks about this. And um, imagine a group of people in the cave. They have lived all their lives in this cave. They know no other reality. This is their world, the only reality they know, what C.S. Lewis called the Shadowlands, because there's a flicker of flame in there that they've started a fire, but it's just shadows all around. And yet somewhere outside of this cave is a real world of sunlight, blue skies, fresh air. It's a world that we know, we know and take for granted. And what seems to the cave dwellers to be the best of all possible worlds we know is absolutely insignificant compared to the outside world, which lies beyond their reach. And here's the question, how might these people in this cave, how could these people come to realise that there's a better world outside? And, you know, a number of, a number of answers could come up. Perhaps they could discover hidden messages in the cave of people who have ventured out and seen a world outside and come back to share their message. Or perhaps the occupants of the cave have some kind of deep intuition that there has to be more to life than this drab, dull and grey world in which they live. Surely there must be something better than this outside. But the best answer, how could these people in this cave come to know that there is a world of glory outside? The best answer, of course, is for someone outside to come into the cave and tell the cave dwellers about the world outside. Now, that is a very weak illustration for what Christmas really is, isn't it? That... God comes into our world from outside. To those of us who shut the entrance to the cave door on God, we've refused and rejected the glory of God. And we've pushed Him out of our lives, and as a result, our world and our lives have become dark. And Christmas is about God showing up to shine the light of His glory that we might know God Himself. That's what Christmas is all about. And every time Jesus performed a miracle, every time he healed 
a lame man, every time he gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, voice to the dumb, and forgiveness to sinners, he was revealing that there is a world of glory outside our cave. A world of color and beauty, of health, without sickness and darkness and despair. But what was the moment of his greatest glory? What was the moment of Jesus' greatest glory? It wasn't just his miracles, his power displays. The moment of his greatest glory, he tells us right before his death, he says, now is the hour of glory. It was his death. The irony is that the brightest moment of Jesus shining was the point at which his life became the most dark. Jesus, he wasn't just born to make, us, make God with us. He was born to bring us back to God. And the greatest act of him showing us the heart of God, what is glory? The outward shining of the inward being of God. What was the greatest moment of Jesus showing in an outward way the inner being of God? It was his death. There we see the immense love and mercy of God. What does God say as he passes by Moses showing forth his glory? He says, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, forgiving thousands their sin, rebellion and wickedness. And yet, I will not leave the sins, uh, I will not leave sins unpunished. How does God maintain that kind of glory where forgiveness is provided and sin is punished? Only at the cross. It's the only moment where you and I can be forgiven and yet we can't just say, God, you're an unjust God because you've just swept away sin. No, sin is punished in Jesus. God vindicates his justice because the moment you sinned, you deserve to die and he let you live. How can God be glorious if he doesn't punish sinners? But he does punish sin on the cross fully and finally. And at the same time, he provides a way to forgive us because our sins are transferred to his son. That's the moment of greatest glory, isn't it? Um, I told this story in the morning and I'll I'll tell it uh, in conclusion. But um, one of my favorite stories is by Soren Kierkegaard, who muses on the incarnation, Christmas. And he, he likens Christmas to a king who falls in love with a humble maiden. Have you heard me on this? You, you've heard me on this before. But he says, imagine a king who falls in love with a humble maiden. And he, and he muses, the king can't go to the humble maiden and tell her of his love. For yes, she would accept his proposal of marriage, But would she do so willingly because she loved him or would she do so because he is her king and she is his servant? And so if the king really wants her heart, what does he need to do? And so in this story, he clothes himself with the rags of a beggar and he goes into the forest and he works a trade out there and he comes alongside this humble maiden and he gets to know her and he wins her heart. They fall in love and he proposes his love to her, and she says yes. And he says, in three days' time, I'll come back, and I'll take you to be my wife. And he does, and when he arrives, he's dressed in splendor and glory. And she's like, what? What? 
It's an incredible story. And that is something of what Christmas is about, isn't it? That in order to win his bride, God, the king, had to come as a man. And yet this king, he has to take off all the robes of his glory in order to save us by dying on a cross. He disrobes of his glory that he might come and win our ransom and provide our redemption. But here's the thing. Uh, In that story, the king actually, he hides his glory, doesn't he? He takes off his splendid robes and he just puts on a beggar's outfit. But in the Christian story, no, the robes of Jesus Christ, that he puts on flesh, that he becomes our servant, that is his true glory. See, where, what is glory? Glory is the outward shining of the inward being. Where do we see right to the heart of God? We see right to the heart of God as Jesus gives up his life for his enemies out of love and compassion that he might forgive them. Where do you see the very heart of God, what God is truly like, his glory? You see it in him giving up his life for the salvation of us. Have people ever asked you, you know, if God really exists, why doesn't he make himself more visible? Do you, you had that question? If he's really there, why doesn't he show himself more? And the answer to that question is, your eyes are blind to see what God is truly like. You know, what they want is some powerful display in the sky. But that would not communicate who God is on the inside. That would display a God of pomp and power but God is a person and therefore if we're to know God we need to know a person and if we met that person what would he be like what is the heart of God he is a servant filled with love and compassion and forgiveness and so what happens in the pages of history is God comes to earth as a servant willing to give up his life for us. And that is the most glorious thing to have ever happened. And yet to the eyes of the world, they don't see it. They want something spectacular in the sky, but that wouldn't be God. If you want to know God, you need to know him as a person. And what kind of person is he? He came to serve us, to lay his life down for us. He, was, he came as a person. He can't be everywhere today, can he? You know, they say, well, why isn't he around today? Why can't Jesus be roaming the world? No, he's one person. That would mean this group of people get to have him and the rest of us don't. No, he ascended to heaven and he makes all his followers. What happens? You become bearers of his glory. Glory now resides inside of you to make Jesus known around the world. What is Christmas about? God created us to enjoy his glory. We lost it. We closed the lid. And Jesus comes into the world to a group of people who are darkened, who don't know God, who don't want his light and his glory. And he comes and shines in this outward shining, the very inner being of God. What is that inner being? It is a heart which is gracious and compassionate, full of love to thousands, forgiving their wickedness, sin and rebellion. That's what Christmas is about. I've got no application other than stand in wonder, awe, 
and love of the God who came to reveal his glory to you and acknowledge it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the clearest picture of who you are. We thank you that he is very God in himself, the second member of the Trinity that we might know him. And Father, we realize in a thousand different ways we've failed to give you the honor and glory that you deserve. And more than that, we've failed to appreciate the person of Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory, the one who shows us yourself. We pray this Christmas that we would get behind the kitsch and that we would see that Christmas is something far more serious and wonderful than we had imagined, that you came to restore us and to give us the hope of glory, that one day you will come and lift us out of this dark cave and bring us into a world of color and light and life and we'll stand in your presence and behold your glory face to face with nothing to fear. We long for that day. And in the meantime, help us to acknowledge Jesus' glory in our daily lives and to point others to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.